1: to Muni Radio at MuniRadio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things.
2: Good morning, mutineers. This is the bee, and it's labor and love. A little mellow blues. For a spring. Weekend.
3: Pidió papeles y le importó muy poco Si mi familia se quedaba abandonada Pero por eso tenga o no tenga papeles Hay que saber sus derechos para poderse defender No tenemos que mostrar ningún papel No tenemos que decirle nada a nadie Menos a la mira, menos a la mira si la agarran usted ya sabe que hacer tenemos derecho de mantener silencio tenemos derecho de hablarle a un abogado no tenemos que firmar ni un documento porque seguro es para la deportación si ve a la amiga ojeando por la calle siga adelante como si no existiera porque aunque buscan a quien se dé latino persiguen a quien empiece a correr con la cetrucha tenemos el derecho de andar sin ninguna identificación sea cordial y no de información que la tranquilidad puede ser su salvación no tenemos que mostrar ningún papel decirle nada a nadie menos a la migra menos a la migra y si la agarran usted ya sabe que hacer tenemos derecho de mantener silencio tenemos derecho de hablarle a un abogado no tenemos que firmar ni un documento porque es seguro es para la deportación ay 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 Que tenemos mucho más derecho del que nos damos cuenta Ahora le hágalo valer, usted también paga impuestos pobres. Es cierto que es muy bonita la confianza Pero la migra de ella se aventaja Trata de usar el miedo o la amistad Para así ver qué información le sacan Solo la unión Sabemos que la fuerza de nuestra tierra nunca nos van a sacar Tenemos mucho más poder del que pensamos Pronto nos educamos y cambiamos hoy la ley No tenemos que mostrar ningún papel No tenemos que decirle nada a nadie Menos a la migra, menos a la migra Y si la agarran usted ya sabe qué hacer Tenemos derecho de mantener silencio Tenemos derecho de hablarle a un abogado No tenemos que firmar ni un documento Porque es seguro para la deportación
4: They call it stormy Monday But Tuesday's just as bad They call it stormy Monday But Tuesday's just as bad Winds is worse And Thursday's also sad Yes, the eagle flies on Friday And Saturday I go out to play Eagle flies on Friday And Saturday I go out to play Sunday I go to church Then I kneel down and pray
2: Mutineers, it's the Labor and Love Show, after a hiatus last week, had the pleasure to go down to the convention, uh, committee meetings for the Labor in the Schools Project, did some work and met some comrades down there, today is a Happy confluence of two holidays, two days of celebration. One, of course, May Day. May Day, celebrated all around the world. We'll talk a little about May Day celebrations all around the world. International Workers' Day. May Day. Second, of course, it's Cinco de Mayo, the 5th of May, a holiday celebrated all over Mexico and in the Mexican-American Chicano communities here in the United States. As usual, uh, Wall Street, the corporate interests want to sell you a way to celebrate May Day. Their way to celebrate May Day is to drink a lot of dos or a lot of Mexican beer. Drink tequila. And get drunk and buy a lot of things. But Cinco de Mayo has a deeper meaning for... Talk a little bit about that too. Let's uh get on with Radio Labor. First of all today. Radio Labor World Labor Report. I want a banana some water
3: and dance on a new track. I want
5: This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor.
6: This is a Radio Labor World Report, recorded on Friday, May 4th, 2018. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, labor organizations celebrated International Workers' Day on May 1st. Why union busting in the United States led to the rise of Donald Trump and his kind. A global union fights for workers as automation and artificial intelligence in the workplace accelerates. The Labour Start report about union events around the world and singing solidarity forever as a love song. This is Radio Labour. Last Monday, May 1st, was International Workers' Day, a day set aside to celebrate the contributions that working men and women make to society. One of the organizations which coordinated May Day activities around the world was the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC is the global body which represents national unions such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States. Sharon Burrow is the ITUC's General Secretary.
7: Happy May 1. This is a significant day, not just because it represents the struggles past and the struggles of the future, but because this year, May 1, is in the 150th year of the labour movement. The birth of the labour movement with the first national centre in the UK 150 years ago. 150 years of struggle all of the rights, the working conditions, the safety standards, and of course the wages, minimum wages and collective bargaining, but also the social wage, social protection that unions have fought for and won. But we've also stood for peace and for democracy, the very foundations that make rights, decent wages, decent work possible. And I would say to you that with the global economic model, in tatters. The trickle-down economic theory of neoliberalism has failed. Inequality is at historic highs. We've still got massive unemployment. We're at risk of seeing the exclusion of a generation of young people from the dignity of work. And we've got the emergence of platform businesses, the businesses that don't see themselves as employing people, marketplaces, they call themselves. Well. We need to be able to organize and bargain collectively for those workers, for workers in the growing informal economy, for workers everywhere.
6: The international labor movement is tackling the effects of automation and artificial intelligence in the workplace. C. Marie Ainsborough reports.
8: The Global Union, which represents some 20 million workers in the skills and services sector, is warning that not enough is being done to protect workers from automation and artificial intelligence. Uni Global Union, based in Switzerland, represents workers in sectors such as cleaning, security, finance, hair, information technology, sport and entertainment. Christine Kolklo is Uni's Director of Platform and Agency Workers, Digitalization and Trade, Currently, there is a chronic
9: underinvestment in humans. And with that, I mean that we have to really start focusing on skills, re- and upskilling, that companies also engage in this, they invest in their people. And that is one of the biggest challenges we have right now. We have to tackle this underinvestment in humans. I think we should embrace the fluidity, the flexibility of this new world of work, but also demand security. And to do so, we have to revamp our social security systems so that all workers in all forms of work have the right to social protection. We have to revamp our educational systems, vocational education and training, to make sure, and this is a very key thing, that workers remain employable. I think to to enable this transition to the digital economy, the best way to do that is dialogue is to make sure that we work together, management and employees,
8: in a friendly and constructive environment. Uni is helping to lead the discussion about the future of work. It will be further developing its strategies at its fifth Global Congress, scheduled to be held in Liverpool June 14th to 20th. Thousands of unionists from around the world will be attending the Congress, including more than a thousand at a special women's conference. This is Marie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour.
10: The problem at the moment is that all these center-left parties are discredited among a large section of workers, ordinary people, and so on.
6: That is Charles Taylor, one of the world's most respected philosophers. He is the inaugural winner of the Million Dollar Berggruen Prize. Dr. Taylor is Professor Emeritus at McGill University in Montreal. On the CBC program Ideas, he was asked how, in the age of Trump, a large number of workers have come to believe that the system works against them.
10: Well, that came to be, I think, by the real long-standing decline in democracy over several—Western democracy over several decades. They're not wrong to feel that they don't count because the levers they used to have to get their message across have gradually— Uh, Weakened and and disappeared. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, immediately after the war, you have these, uh, we had these effective center-left parties with very large memberships and trade union movement with very large memberships. So, you had something behind you if you were a worker who was unemployed or having a really hard time. There was legislation they could propose and some of it was proposed and carried through and really helped create that period of 30 years after the war where everyone had a job and, but, uh, now, when somebody feels I've lost my last uh, permanent job, and I'm now in precarious situation and so on, where can I turn for help? The center-left parties just don't seem to have it in most countries. I mean, think of the United States with the Democratic Party or Britain with the Labour Party. And that itself changes the whole outlook that people have. The growth of magical thinking in our epoch, Trump says, I'm going to reverse the whole thing. And How? Well, <laughs> I'll do it. Just trust me that that is a creation of this sense of impotence. Rational thinking implies that you have some idea of what you can do, what the cause-effect relations, where you can push buttons somewhere, right? And when you really lose that, and you lose even a sense of what it was like, right, then First of all, you get tremendous resentment, you think these elites that used to be leading these parties don't care for us, they're not interested in us, and so on, and there's some truth in that. You only not only get resentment, but you also get the kind of magical thinking where the people who swear strongest against that leadership seem to you to be, oh, yeah, they're getting somewhere. They're saying something true. And then you don't look too closely at the actual mechanisms they're proposing. There is this sense that the elites have let them down, the traditional liberal center-left elites, and that they have to break out of that, and what the, the alternative offers is a massive breakout, Brexit breaking out of Europe. I mean, you always means that they find scapegoats for this, which are not always totally wrong. I mean, not, they're right to think that neoliberalism has not uh, taken care of large parts of the working class in an epoch of, mm-hmm. of a globalization, but they also find in their, if you like, their identity worries... They find a good channel to express this sense of resentment and a sense of being let down. I think democracy depends on a sense of what I call citizen efficacy in a large number of people, particularly non-elites, a sense that there's somewhere you can go, some levers you can push, some votes you can make. And um, that revivifies democracy. Just think back eight years. What was the great slogan of Obama's campaign? it was yes we can right and that speaks to a sense of it's impossible we can't but yeah yeah we can we can by getting together we can by organizing etc <clears throat> when that goes then a, a real kind of panic takes over a real sense that it's getting worse out of control it'll go on getting worse when people reach for anything any kind of slogan
6: Here is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder with his report about union events around the world.
1: Here's a small sample of the average of 210 news stories added to our site each day last week. Our top stories section included links to coverage of the Iranian workers who ignored a ban on May Day and marched at great risk to themselves the start of a campaign by the International Federation of Journalists to stop the killing of journalists as 10 were killed in one day in Afghanistan, and the threat of more mass sackings in Zimbabwe as teachers move towards a national walkout. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. The French rail strikes continued, as did the remarkable walkouts by American teachers. 20,000 Sudanese port workers shut down all the country's cargo handling sites to protest the restructuring of ports' ownership. Georgian road builders held a flash strike over excessive hours, the failure to pay for overtime, and over safety concerns. Chilean airline flight attendants ended their 18-day strike last week. Eight jute mills were closed as textile workers struck Bangladeshi employers as part of a national effort to gain a living wage. Brazilian customs inspectors intensified their job action and moved from one day a week off the job to three. The national bus strike continued to cause commuter chaos across South Africa. And 21,000 Indian teachers stayed in the classroom but held a one-week-long hunger strike in an effort to gain a wage increase. The hunger strike was called off after more than 100 workers had been hospitalized. Our top working women stories included coverage of a call by Swiss unions for a boycott of employers who failed to implement pay equity, The release of a report detailing the barriers to women's full participation in their unions across Africa and the effort unions are making to educate rural women in Pakistan about their workplace rights. The Health and Safety Newswire we run in cooperation with Hazards Magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the International Day of Mourning events held around the world the factory fire on the day of morning that raised the number of workers killed in New Delhi in workplace fires alone to 28 so far this year, and a safety strike by Kenyan construction workers. Currently, Labor Start is running two online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor.
6: As teachers in the United States set up picket lines to fight for decent wages and quality education, one of the organizations helping them is the National Education Association. Here is the president of the NEA, Lily Escelson Garcia, with her love song version of "Solidarity Forever." When
5: the union's in. Through the workers' blood shall run. There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. But what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever, for the union makes us strong in a nurse's healing hand power greater than their goal. In a teacher's caring guidance, magnify four million fold. The might of brothers and of sisters, black and white and young and old.
6: that's it international labor news you can use thank you for listening and remember it's all about global solidarity
2: okay <clears throat> global solidarity here the, uh, the nice rendition of solidarity forever By the president of the NEA, of all things. The NEA historically is the uh, conservative, more conservative of the uh, teachers' unions. Well, let's identify ourselves here. I sort of jumped right into it. And I got to say right off the bat that I got some real uh, heartrending news. So I uh, might be a little slow today. However, it's Labor and Love Radio, the radio show, where we tell you how it is. That is, if one person got a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. That is, if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. You can bet on that. And third, never but never let anyone into your house or into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. This is Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road, and you're listening to Mutiny Radio, our physical presence here on 21st and Florida, 2781 21st Street. Our net presence goes all over the San Francisco community, California, U.S. and the world. Listen to us on mutinyradio.fm. If you miss a live show, don't worry. Our shows are archived at mutinyradio.fm and under podcasts, you can also get Labor and Love Radio on iTunes. And as I say, today is a happy confluence of two holidays. We played, uh, started out with some blues, because I'm feeling kind of blue, but in a nice mellow Saturday morning kind of way. Second, followed up with Francisco Herrera a uh, real presence on the San Francisco music and politics scene. Francisco sang a song about ante la migra, saber ante la migra. And in his song, he tells what the law is, what you have to do if the migra stops you, and what you have to say and what you don't have to say. All in the form of a song, not unlike the The uh, blankets, the quilts that were sewn by women and working under slavery that showed how to get out and get away, how to follow the drinking gourd. And third, we had the classic workers' blues, Stormy Monday Blues by T-Bone Walker. What do we got for you today? Well, in celebration of International Workers' Day, we're going to play the first several parts of Fred Glass's monumental history of the California labor movement, Golden Lands, Working Hands. Glass was for many years the communications director for CFT, the California Federation of Teachers, that is the teachers' union. And uh, during his years, he compiled this history, went out and got it funded, and uh, shook hands to raise money. And what he produced was memory, a memory for California's working people. Let's start that now. Here's part one. Fred Glass's Golden Land's Working Hand. Step
1: step by I'm step the
11: longest march can be one, can be one. Many stones to
5: form an arch. Singly none. Singly none. And by union what we will can be accomplished till drops of water turn a mill.
4: Singly none, singly none.
12: These are union members in 1949 going to a meeting. They will vote to end a strike and accept an offer from employers, making them the highest paid warehouse workers in the country. They have a right to hold this meeting. They have a right to have been on strike. But workers had to fight to get those rights. And they had to fight to keep them. Working people are often proud of the work they do. They should be they built this state and this country with their hands and sweat and occasionally with their blood. Steel workers and their families near Chicago Memorial Day 1937 wanted a union. Ten families were given a new reason to remember Memorial Day. This was not an unusual occurrence in the 1930s. In California for instance, Longshoremen Howard Sperry and Nick Bordeaux, a cook, lost their lives to bullets in the back, sparking the 1934 San Francisco general strike. Of course, that was a long time ago. No employer today abuses workers the way they used to be treated.
7: Near Los Angeles, a raid has freed garment workers so desperate, so trapped, that perhaps only one word describes what they endured, slavery.
1: With sewing machines in the garage, the living room, and the dining room, the undocumented workers said they were forced to work 120 hours a week for less than $2 an hour. The Immigration and Naturalization Service knew about the alleged operation more than three years ago but took no enforcement action.
12: And when workers today exercise their legal right to protest, we would imagine they are treated with proper respect. Who are these people and what motivated them to choose to stand up time and again for their rights? Some have been famous, but for most we have no statues, no official memory, perhaps a glimpse of blurry faces without names. These are the ones we speak of when we say they sacrificed and sometimes gave their lives back in the day so that we might have rights in our workplaces and communities. If we are interested in protecting the inheritance they left us, it would help to know who they were, to look at California history from the perspective of its working people and their labor movement from then to now.
11: Who laid the foundation? Not dissing, but who built the missions of our nation? The gold rush washed ashore, millions of dreams and schemes, prospectors bought and sold the gold that just rolled from streams. But was it all white people, like they always say, or was it people of color working back in the day? They were cooking and washing and building and being guys and making clothing and planting and hunting and tanning hides. Got lucky and got paid The rest worked themselves to death Back then there was no minimum No mystery, California workers made history.
2: Okay, that was the intro to Golden Land's Working Hands, and see if we can look on recent. Part two is with labor movement in the beginning in the 1860s or so, with the the gold rush, that is, and how workers uh, took advantage of the situation in California, where most working people, men especially, ran to the mountains, tried to get rich. Some stayed by. Part two of Golden Land's Working (laughs) Hand.
12: In the 1860s, Charles Crocker hires 12,000 Chinese laborers to build the Central Pacific Railroad. They lay tracks east from Sacramento in a race to meet the Union Pacific with its Irish workforce coming west. Crocker is glad to be able to pay the Chinese workers less money than he pays whites. Better still, he boasts There is no danger from strikes among them. The work, however, is dangerous. Primitive explosives take many lives. In one particularly frightening job, workers are lowered over cliffs in baskets. High above the ground, they plant dynamite, light the fuse, and hope they're lifted back to the top of the cliff before they're blown to bits. In the winter of 1866, Record snows fall in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Rather than call a halt until better conditions return, Crocker orders the work to continue in tunnels 50 feet beneath the surface. His assistant tells Congress, The snow slides carried away our
13: camps and we lost a good many men in those slides. Many of them we did not find until
12: the next season when the snow melted. That spring, 5,000 Chinese workers go on strike. They want eight-hour days and to be paid the same as white workers. Crocker considers importing black strikebreakers from the East, but he figures out an easier solution. He surrounds the camps with armed guards.
13: I stopped the provisions on them. He brags.
12: Starving, they go back to work. The Transcontinental Railroad is completed in 1869. Before this picture is taken, Chinese workers are told to move aside. Then they are discharged. Some join the state's growing army of farm laborers. Thousands more drift to San Francisco, where they encounter another group of immigrants. Irish workers flocked to California after the gold rush seeking escape from prejudice and stalled opportunities on the east coast. They become the largest group of white immigrants in San Francisco and provide much of the muscle in constructing the new city. Not many jobs are open to women who as late as 1860 are outnumbered in the general population by men nearly six to one. Most find work as domestics. Kate Kennedy follows another path. In the new San Francisco public schools, 57 of the 72 teachers are women. Some of the Irish transplants rise to prominence in the city's young labor movement. Alexander Kennedy, a printer, helps form the San Francisco Trades Union in 1863, the first council of unions in California. Kennedy becomes its president, starts up a labor newspaper, and leads a growing movement for a standard eight-hour workday. The need is clear. People are working 11 or 12 hours per day, six days a week. There's no such thing as a weekend. For bakers, who work 14 hours, seven days per week, there is just work. In 1867, thousands of workers strike and demonstrate for an eight-hour day. By the following year, with a strong economy and after continuous pressure by unions, the legislature passes the first statewide eight-hour law in the country. It is celebrated with a huge nighttime parade in San Francisco. This moment of strength for the new trade union movement does not last long. The completion of the transcontinental railroad floods the state with cheap goods from back east, ruining California businesses. A severe national depression sends workers west. The eight-hour day is lost due to the number of hungry workers willing to work ten or more.
13: Things look mighty blue at present. No money, rent due, coal nearly out, little food in the house, and worst of all, no prospects ahead, either to pay what is due or to replace what is
12: nearly out. In cigar-making and garment production, shoe and boot making, Chinese and Irish workers compete directly for scarce jobs. White workers fault the Chinese for falling wages and exclude Chinese workers from their unions. They create labels to paste on their products calling for boycotts of Chinese-made goods and urge people to buy union-made products instead. Chinese become afraid to venture out of the Chinatown ghetto for fear of racist violence. In response to the conflict, Congress holds hearings in 1876 in San Francisco to investigate the impact of Chinese immigration on the economy.
13: I am in favor of anybody making a living that possibly can. But I am a married man and have a family of four little children suffering here. Years ago, I could average $20 a week. My average wages for the last week is $14.89. I put in 14 hours a day. If a Chinaman has a mind to work for my firm, he gets employment and I have to compete with him. He offers to work for about one third less the price I am working for now.
12: In July of 1877, hundreds of thousands of railroad workers around the country go on strike, protesting wage cuts below subsistence level. A war breaks out. On one side, the railroads, assisted by police and National Guard. On the other, Railroad workers, their families and communities, fed up with the power and arrogance of the railroad companies. Hundreds of workers are killed. The corporations sustain millions of dollars in damages. In San Francisco, socialists call a meeting in solidarity with railroad workers in front of the unfinished city hall. 8,000 people peacefully hear speakers denounce the greedy railroad owners and call for an eight-hour day. But toward the end of the rally, an anti-Chinese group leads part of the crowd away, crying, On to Chinatown! This begins a three-day riot. One newspaper considers the events so extraordinary, its editor does something unheard of. He allows the words of a Chinese man
14: to enter a news story. I was employed in Sea si Sao's laundry. On Tuesday night, about half past ten o'clock, Two Chinese boys who had been visiting the shop started out and saw a crowd of 15 or 20 white men approaching. The Chinese boys ran back and gave the alarm. The front door was locked and we Chinamen started out the back door when we came upon two white men who had coal oil cans in their hands. They ordered us back into the house. We then attempted to escape by the front door and were fired upon with pistols by the crowd in the street. There were about 15 white men there and more than 10 shots were fired. I did not see the deceased at the time. The rest of us ran away and hid in the bushes. We heard the white man breaking open boxes. The proprietor's chest in which he kept his money was in the house. In about half an hour after we escaped, You saw the house
12: on fire. Governor William Irwin blames the violence on hoodlums, thieves, and communists. Although the riots end after three days, their underlying causes remain. Unemployment is high, wages low. San Francisco's immigrant workers see a stark contrast between their deteriorating condition and the huge fortunes of a few capitalists, such as Charles Crocker, owner of this mansion. The house gains notoriety when a small businessman, who owns a little home adjacent to Crocker's, refuses to sell his lot so that Crocker can expand his palace. Enraged, the capitalist orders his workmen to build a 40-foot-high fence on three sides of the little lot. This becomes known as Crocker's Spite Fence. Ten weeks after the riots, the Workingmen's Party of California is formed. Its members are drawn from the ranks of immigrant workers as well as small business people fearing economic ruin. The party program calls for an eight-hour day, public works to employ the unemployed, taxing the rich, controlling the railroads, and free public education for all. It also calls for deportation of Chinese workers. Oh, California's coming down, as you can plainly see. They're hiring all the Chinamen and discharging you and me.
14: There were long processions at night with big torchlights and lanterns carrying the slogan, The Chinese Must Go, and mass meetings where fiery tongues flayed the Chinese bogey. Dennis Kearney, an Irish
12: immigrant and businessman wannabe, shoots to overnight fame with his rude but effective speeches in San Francisco sandlots. At a rally held on wealthy Knob Hill across the street from Crocker's Spite Fence, Kearney tells the workingmen's crowd. I will give the Central Pacific just three months to discharge their Chinamen.
13: And if that is not done, Stanford and his crowd will have to take the consequences. When the Chinese question is settled, we can discuss whether it would be better to hang, shoot, or cut the capitalists to pieces.
12: But not all party leaders are as racist or inflammatory
14: as Kearney.
5: I am not an advocate for the importation of the Chinamen here in droves, but I believe in the brotherhood of man. And I cannot believe that we have any right to exclude one race of people for the sake of building up another.
12: Frank Roney is an iron molder and an exiled Irish revolutionary. For a time, he rivals Kearney in the workingman's leadership. He and his followers want to steer the party toward trade union organization. For Roni, the anti-Chinese program of the party is...
13: ...brutal, and such as no self-respecting people would dream of imposing upon the members of any race within their midst. The only objection to them that I felt had any validity was that they were cheap workers.
12: The Workingmen's Party spreads throughout California. It elects dozens of officials to public office. In 1878, More than a third of the delegates elected to the State Constitutional Convention are from the workingmen. But Roni, who by this time has been forced out of the party's leadership by Kearney, is not impressed by the party's participation in the convention.
13: The majority of the workingmen's delegates studied fundamental law and what was best for their constituents in nearby saloons, and played cards with a nourishing glass of foam top
12: beer. Within a few years, the party collapses. Its major legacy is organized race hatred, bearing bitter fruit in the federal Anti-Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Even after the end of Chinese immigration, white workers continue to blame Chinese workers each time the economy dives. Although Anna Smith asks,
5: Why is the condition of working people in the East where there are no Chinamen worse than it is here?
12: Years later, Frank Roney recalled,
13: I took as active a part as I could to make the party as robust and as progressive as the times and circumstances permitted. It was essentially an anti Chinese party. However, I never warmed to that feature of the agitation.
12: Instead, after leaving the party, Roney seeks to expand working class power by coordinating union efforts. His new organization, the Trades Assembly, stabilizes the city's labor movement. With it, Workers carry their vision of the eight-hour day into the next decade.
4: It's a mighty hard road that our poor hand is hold, and our poor feet has traveled a hot, dusty road.
12: As early as 1871, when most Americans lived on farms, economist Henry George wrote. The land of California
13: is already to a great extent monopolized by a few individuals who hold thousands and hundreds of thousands of acres apiece. Over our ill-kept, shadeless, dusty roads, which run frequently for miles through the same man's land, plod the tramps, with blankets on back, the laborers of the California farmer looking for work in its seasons.
12: Author Jack London worked as a farm laborer. He asks,
13: if there were constant work at good wages for every man who would harvest the crops
12: the growers have their answer immigrants if they can't squeeze large enough profits out of the native-born workers they'll import workers who can be squeezed
4: along the edge of your cities you'll see us and then
15: we've come with the dust and we're gone with the wind
2: Okay, you're uh, listening to Labor and Love Radio and our special feature today is Golden Land's Working Hands A History by CFT's Fred Glass of the California Labor Movement The uh, DVD of Golden Land's Working Hands is available from cft.org as well as A lot of labor materials for young people, young workers, anyone who wants to learn more about the labor movement. We've got trading cards, we've got videos such as this one. We've got uh, books, working on a series of lesson plans of how to teach uh, social justice. So we saw in uh, Chapter 2 how race hatred divided and weakened the early California labor movement. And we'll see this over and over again. When we're together, we have a chance to win. Divided by ethnicity or gender or whatever, we almost always lose. Part 3, coming up. San Francisco becomes a union town, and L.A. almost does. Question here for Chapter 3 is, when, if at all, is violence justified in the fight for social justice? In 1910 Los Angeles, as today, here and now, this was a burning question. The fate of working people in Los Angeles and their labor movement depended on its answer. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, workers exert their power despite the great earthquake, and in Oxnard, Japanese, and Mexican-American workers get it together. Here we go. Part 3 of Golden Land's Working Hands.
12: Come on down. Los Angeles is paradise. The sun shines all year round, land is cheap, jobs are plentiful, and if you don't want to work, you can always go to the beach. Just ask Otis. Harrison Gray Otis owns the Los Angeles Times. In addition to shaping the heavenly image of Southern California, Otis is the chief architect of L.A.'s ongoing anti-union campaign. It begins when he breaks his own employee's union in 1890. Otis runs the Merchants and Manufacturers Association, which hires labor spies, imports strike breakers, and creates blacklists to keep known unionists from working. The association receives generous support from admirers like Henry Huntington, owner of the Pacific Electric Railway. Huntington had consolidated his enormous economic and political power in Los Angeles by marrying his aunt, the widow of Collis Huntington one of the four original owners of the Central Pacific Railroad. The Huntingtons don't much like Otis, but agree with him on the need to keep Los Angeles workers in their place. However, the fanaticism of Otis, who likes to be called General Otis, causes a reaction in turn-of-the-century Los Angeles. The labor movement grows alarmingly radical. Leaders of the Los Angeles Council of Labor such as Shoemaker Lem Biddle, suffragist Francis Noel, and organizer Fred Wheeler are socialists. They believe workers who produce all wealth should own and use it themselves. Even the occasional capitalist like Gaylord Wilshire, after whom Wilshire Boulevard is named, becomes convinced by socialist ideas. Working people are listening too. Laundry workers hear the message because they work 12 to 14 hour days without overtime pay. Serious burns from scalding liquid and harsh chemicals are considered part of the work. As in the rest of the country, children in Los Angeles are employed everywhere alongside adults. Since they are paid very little, competition with child labor forces down the wages of adults, too. Iron workers who raise the skeletons of the new buildings called skyscrapers face injury and death each day for the lowest pay in the building trades. There are no workers' compensation or occupational safety laws to help them. Ironworkers have to deal with the National Erectors Association, which hires labor spies like Robert Foster. As Ironworkers' union leader John McNamara reports, the association recruits, Professional thugs to beat up those who attempt to form a union.
13: On both sides, it was war to the knife and knife to the hilt.
12: Responding to these conditions, working people seek solutions. In 1901, women and men organized themselves into the Shirtwaist and Laundry Workers Union. They want a 10-hour day, time and a half for overtime, Sundays and holidays, and equal wages for men and women. When the laundry owners refuse to meet these requests, 500 employees in seven laundries go on strike. The owners are backed by the full strength of the Merchants and Manufacturers Association. The Los Angeles Times tells its readers that the laundry workers enjoy excellent working conditions and under no circumstances should the owners submit to union tyranny. As a result, the workers are able to win union recognition and better conditions in just one of the laundries. Nevertheless, union membership in Los Angeles quadruples between 1900 and 1903. You are a streetcar driver working the Market Street line. For ten hours each day you observe the new century's marvels like horseless carriages which only rich men can afford. You roll past beautiful buildings carefully made by skilled craftsmen. But you have no time to admire things. Traffic is intense. San Francisco is known as a union town. The streetcarmen's union alone has 2,000 members. The strongest unions, however, are made up of the craft workers in the Building Trades Council, who enjoy the protections of a union shop as the result of a powerful strike victory in 1900. Each worker needs a union card to work. Each contractor has to hire union workers and use only union-made materials. Any violation of these rules is swiftly dealt with by the Council and its Irish immigrant leader, P. H. McCarthy. Women are becoming a force in the San Francisco labor movement for the first time. Facing bullying supervisors, physically uncomfortable workstations, and sexual harassment, telephone operators form a union. They want to defend themselves against work one operator calls, nerve destroying. Some workers have already won the eight-hour day. You hope your commons union can do the same soon, because ten hours on your feet six days a week is no picnic. Determined to Roll Back Union Achievements is a secret anti-union employers association. It attempts to break the Teamsters Union in the summer of 1901. The plan backfires. By the end of summer, more than 15,000 workers are on strike in solidarity with the Teamsters and for a universal eight-hour day. Sailors Union leader Andrew Furiouseth is chosen to coordinate strike activities. Waterfront workers in 14 unions shut down the port of San Francisco. Bitter battles rage in the streets between workers and armies of thugs hired by the employers. Unionists are infuriated by collaboration between the police and strikebreakers, and by Mayor James Phelan, who turns a deaf ear to union leaders arguing the police should remain neutral. After 10 weeks, a truce is arranged. The unions not only survive, Within a few weeks, they formed the Union Labor Party and elect Eugene Schmitz, leader of the Musicians' Union, mayor of San Francisco. For years, most unions followed the political advice of AFL President Sam Gompers, who urged labor to reward your friends and punish your enemies within the Democratic and Republican parties. This policy does result in some labor law reforms enacted by progressive politicians. But the waterfront strike converts San Francisco workers to a new viewpoint. Says Furious Seth, I found that we had a class government already, and
13: inasmuch as we are going to have a class government, I most emphatically prefer a
12: working class government. In 1900, Eugene Debs runs for the presidency of the United States. Known to Los Angeles unionists as the leader of the American Railway Union, He had first come to their city following the Great Pullman Strike of 1894, speaking before huge crowds of workers. During that strike, Debs learned that corporations could force the government to do their bidding against the people. The experience converted him into a socialist and motivated him to run for president. For his running mate, he chose Job Harriman, a skinny Indiana preacher turned lawyer. Calling for restraints on corporations and economic justice for working people, Their ticket received 100,000 votes. But the socialist message was just beginning to spread. Harriman had moved to Los Angeles for his health. He soon rose to prominence as a union attorney. Many of his clients were the victims of Otis and the merchants and manufacturers. When Ricardo Flores Magón, a Mexican anarchist labor organizer, is arrested in Los Angeles with his brother under flimsy legal circumstances, Harriman defends him and helps to turn his case into a union cause. General Otis writes in Times editorials that the demonstrations of support for Flores Magón in the Mexican-American community are being conducted by greasers not of the better kind of Mexican. Otis is referring to working people such as those who built LA's electric rail system. With the assistance of the Labor Council's Lem Biddle, Mexican workers had gone on strike against El Traque in 1903 and 1904 earning the wrath of Otis and Huntington.
4: We worked in your orchards of peaches and prunes And we slept on the ground neath the light of the
12: moon Due to its socialist leadership, the Los Angeles Council of Labor is way ahead of the rest of the labor movement in extending its hand to workers of color. When farm workers reach across barriers of language and race to form the Japanese-Mexican labor alliance, Fred Wheeler convinces the all-white labor council to support them in creating the first union in California's fields. Wheeler travels to Oxnard, just north of Los Angeles. He finds a small town. Its stores and services support the famous Southern California citrus industry. But Oxnard is also surrounded by extensive sugar beet farms beneath the shadow of a massive factory. Built in 1897, the second largest sugar works in the United States, it's owned by the Oxnard family, just one of whom lives within a thousand miles of Oxnard. The Oxnards treat the factory managers well, providing them with large houses and nice parties. Oxnard workers are treated less well, especially the farm workers. Brought by labor contractors from Mexico and Japan to work in the beet fields, they live in places like these. They pay inflated prices for their food and supplies in company stores, and work long hours planting, thinning, harvesting, and transporting the sugar beets. Early in 1903, the growers, in an attempt to eliminate the middleman, form their own labor contracting company. The Japanese and Mexican contractors lose business and workers' wages are cut. Anger helps them to form a union and go on strike. Despite grower-initiated violence reported as a labor riot in the local newspapers, the farm workers stand firm for two months. Few sugar beets make it into the mill. Finally, the bosses back down. With some help from Wheeler, JMLA President Kusuburu Baba, shown here in a photo taken years later, negotiates a settlement restoring workers' pay and giving Japanese and Mexican contractors back their business. Against all odds, the union wins. But its troubles aren't over. The Mexican Secretary of the Alliance, J.M. Lazares, petitions the national AFL for a union charter. Samuel Gompers responds, It is understood that in issuing
13: this charter to your union, we will under no circumstance accept membership of any
12: Chinese or Japanese. Lazares and the Mexican members of the Alliance refuse Gompers' condition. They write back,
14: In the past, we have counseled, fought, lived on very short rations with our Japanese brothers and have toiled with them in the fields, and they have uniformly been kind and considerate, we would be false to them, to ourselves, to the cause of unionism, if we now accepted privileges for ourselves, which are not accorded to them.
12: Without connection to the broader labor movement, the JMLA soon disappears from sight. One of the San Francisco workers who rides your streetcar is George Farris, a rank and file member of the Carpenters Local 22. We don't know how he looked because, like most working people back in the day, he left no pictures. But Farris did something unusual by which we do know him. He kept a diary. Like most carpenters, he suffered periods of unemployment. He attended union picnics, was a teetotaler, and took a quiet pride in his craft skills. The wind last night blew down a
13: two-story building on Sacramento Street that was nearly ready for the Lathers. But our building stood the wind all right. Ferris stopped by the Union Hall to pick up a straw hat to wear in the Labor Day parade. The parade was splendid. The paper said it was the largest ever seen in San Francisco. It took two hours and 40 minutes to pass a given
12: point. These numbers are reflected in Labor's political strength. Among the marchers is waitress Maud Younger who helps the working women's suffrage movement gain momentum. The labor vote also keeps the Union Labor Party in power for much of the century's first decade. But city politics aren't a smooth ride for working people. Mayor Schmitz and most of his board of supervisors are implicated along with leading businessmen in a nasty bribery scandal. Soon, this is the least of the city's problems for workers and for everyone else. On April 18, 1906, San Francisco was first shaken by a huge earthquake and then ravaged by fires from ruptured gas mains. Over the next few years, union labor enthusiastically rebuilds San Francisco. You are glad that restoring the streetcar lines is a top priority because you need the work. Due to the emergency, workers and unions agree to suspend work rules and wage increases for a time. But when some bosses take advantage of the situation, labor conflict flares. Your union asks for an eight-hour day at three dollars pay to keep up with sharply rising living costs. Patrick Calhoun, owner of the United Railroads, responds by locking you out. Perhaps he knows that in two days he will be indicted for bribery in the spreading political corruption scandals. The first day of the strike, you are enraged to hear that strikebreakers have fired into a crowd of your brother's street carmen, killing two. Peter York, a Catholic priest and union sympathizer, says, Where
13: there is not justice, there cannot be peace. The labor
12: council proclaims a boycott.
13: Let every union man, woman, and child keep away from Calhoun's cars.
12: Many middle-class suffragists refuse to support the Carmen.
13: It's not their husbands, sons and brothers on strike.
12: You are heartened when working women upset with their middle-class sisters' lack of sympathy show their solidarity with your cause by forming the Independent Wage-Earner's Suffrage League. You are also pleased with Mayor Schmitz when he rejects Calhoun's request to put police on the streetcars. You'd rather the police pay attention to the scab, Carmen, and their continuous violence against strikers and the public. But after six months, San Franciscans grow weary of walking and bicycling to work. You lose Schmitz when he is convicted in the Union Labor Party corruption scandals. Calhoun waits you out behind his private army of strikebreakers. A political fight erupts between Union factions over whether to support the scandal-ridden Union Labor Party. Your Union gets caught in the middle, and your strike fund shrinks. Hungry, you are forced back to work at 10 hours a day in the old pay scale. You have been defeated by divisions in the labor movement, by the public taint spread over all Unions by the corrupt Union Labor Party, and by the superior resources of capital. Six of your Union brothers are dead. The commons union is crushed not to be rebuilt for years. Politically, though, things improve. Building Trades Council leader McCarthy rids the union labor party of its corrupt elements, promising a clean administration. He's elected mayor in 1909. He faces an immediate challenge. San Francisco employers tell him that if the unions do not organize Los Angeles, competition from its cheap labor will bankrupt San Francisco businesses. Business leaders issue a warning go south and organize Los Angeles or accept the open shop. Early in the morning on October 1st, 1910, explosions rip through the Los Angeles Times building. Twenty newspaper workers die. General Otis immediately accuses unionists of planting a bomb. Labor leaders point out that workers in the building had complained for weeks that gas fumes were making them sick. When Iron Workers Union leader John McNamara and his brother James are kidnapped by private investigators and thrown in jail accused of the bombing, Unionists widely believe that they are being framed. Radical attorney Clarence Darrow is persuaded by Sam Gompers to join Job Harriman on the McNamara's legal team. Contributions for the McNamara's defense pour in. Labor Day 1911 is declared McNamara Brothers Day by Gompers and the National AFL. With the assistance of San Francisco's strong union movement, a major organizing drive is launched in Los Angeles, bringing the number of union members to its highest point ever. The McNamara Brothers case helps stoke simmering feelings of injustice felt by working people. Emotions are further inflamed when at the urging of the Merchants and Manufacturers Association, the Los Angeles City Council passes an ordinance banning picketing. Harriman defends scores of union members rounded up, often beaten and thrown in jail by police, enthusiastically enforcing the new law. In the midst of these events, Harriman announces his candidacy for mayor of Los Angeles. At a July 4th rally, he promises to repeal the anti-picketing law half an hour after his election. Harriman wants to convert the city's utilities and railways to public ownership, build public baths, swimming pools and libraries, provide free textbooks in the public schools. In a direct slap at Otis, he promises a publicly financed weekly newspaper. Harriman also pledges to investigate Otis and a number of his rich friends who had profited handsomely from construction of the Los Angeles aqueduct now nearing completion. Just by coincidence, Otis and his partners owned the land on which the aqueduct terminated, suddenly making their desert holdings extremely valuable. As the primary approaches, John McNamara, while not himself a socialist, endorses Harriman from his prison cell saying,
13: There is but one way for the working class to get justice. Elect its own representatives to office.
12: Even Sam Gompers comes to Los Angeles to urge Harriman's election. Harriman's campaign is headquartered in the Los Angeles Labor Council building, a sign of the growing closeness of labor and the socialists. G.W. Whitley, leader of the Afro-American League, endorses Harriman and runs as a member of his slate for city council, the only black candidate in the election. This is the high tide of the socialist movement in America. In 1911, Hundreds of socialists are elected to local and state office around the country. In 1912, Eugene Debs would receive nearly a million votes for president. Branches of the Los Angeles party are formed by ethnic groups, young people, and women who will be voting for the first time in a municipal election. The primary results become Otis's nightmare. Harriman, in an open primary, places first in a field of five. Labor leader Fred Wheeler receives the highest number of votes of any city council candidate. The newspapers go to red alert. The Express warns that a Harriman victory would signal the end of L.A.'s prosperity. The Times swings its support to the runner-up, George Alexander, for the general election. Harriman assesses his rival. He never heard of a social problem and would not know one if he met it in the street. The Los Angeles Socialist Party, supremely confident, holds huge rallies for Harriman. Unfortunately, there is something Harriman doesn't know. Clarence Darrow realizes the McNamaras are guilty. To save the lives of his clients, he cuts a secret deal approved personally by General Otis. Four days before the election, without informing Harriman, the McNamaras switch their plea to guilty. Thousands of disillusioned voters change their minds about voting for a man associated with admitted bombers. On election day, Harriman loses. John McNamara later blamed Darrow for misinforming him. We were led to believe that the prosecution had evidence to
13: convict some of the most prominent leaders of labor, and that only a confession by Jim and me would or could have saved them from the gallows. It was not to save our lives,
12: but theirs, that finally constrained us to
13: agree to a confession.
12: Stunned union leaders and -and rank-and-file members all over the country distance themselves from the McNamaras. Defense contributions dry up. James McNamara is sentenced to life and John McNamara to 15 years in San Quentin. The Los Angeles Union organizing drive dies with their conviction. For a brief moment the working people of Los Angeles could almost touch the twin possibilities of political power and unionization. But that potential falls victim to the McNamara's decision to settle Labor's score with Otis with a bomb. Although socialists Fred Wheeler and Estelle Lindsay are elected to the city council soon afterward, the socialist party begins to decline. This occurs even as some of its demands enter the mainstream, like progressive laws creating workers' compensation and the eight-hour day for women. Job Harriman becomes convinced that the capitalist class is too strong to allow workers to take real power through the ballot box. He helps to form Llano del Río, a socialist cooperative colony outside Los Angeles, which flourishes briefly. Years later, Eugene Debs reflects, If you want to judge McNamara, you must
13: first serve a month as structural ironworker on a skyscraper, risking your life every minute to feed your wife and babies, then being discharged and blacklisted for joining a union. Every floor in every skyscraper represents a working man killed in its erection.
2: You're listening to Fred Glass's history of the California labor movement on Labor and Love Radio here at Mutiny Radio .fm What if the McNamara's had waited those 4 days until the election? What if Harriman had then been been elected mayor of Los Angeles? John McNamara claimed they had been tricked into confessing before the election and it is certain that Darrow, well, on and on and on. We can and do debate endlessly. It is endlessly debated. But let's return to our original question. Is violence in the name of social justice a justifiable thing? In this case... It was counterproductive. All right, here we go with part four of Golden Land's Working Hands by Fred Glass. Those terrific 20s, huh? The jazz age. Well, for workers, they were not so jazzy.
12: Men.
4: Every state in this union migrants has been.
12: Ralph Durst, owner of California's largest hop ranch, wants harvest workers and he gets them. Nearly 3,000 men, women and children speaking two dozen languages appear in response to his advertisements. But there are jobs for less than half of them. That's fine with Durst. He uses the extra workers to lower wages. He supplies nine outdoor toilets, which quickly overflow. There's no plan for removing garbage or waste. It's August. Despite 100 degree heat, Durst makes no water available in the fields. That's because his cousin is selling a special lemonade made from citric acid. Workers and their families soon get diarrhea, dysentery, and typhoid. The camp reeks. Among the workers are a few dozen members of the Industrial Workers of the World, a radical union which has had some success Organizing in seasonal industries like lumber and agriculture they lead a peaceful protest of conditions on Durst's ranch
13: It's for the life of the kids that we're doing this
12: says Blackie Ford Durst calls the law a Deputy fires into the air starting a fight which leaves four dead IWW leaders Blackie Ford and Herman Sewer are convicted of murder Although neither was armed and Sewer wasn't even in the camp when the shooting occurred Shocked by the events, the state government sets up a commission to investigate farm labor conditions. Sanitation improves at the Durst Ranch, but little else changes for California farm
4: workers.
12: During the First World War, the American economy prospers. Jobs are plentiful, and AFL unions grow. San Francisco shipyards hire men like John Mackin, whose Union dues book shows steady work for the war years. The San Francisco Chamber of Commerce stages a Preparedness Day parade in July 1916. The event is meant to whip up public enthusiasm for the country's entry into the war overseas. The Labor Council boycotts the event. Its newspaper argues that if the United States enters the war, working people will be sent to fight and die while the rich stay safe at home getting richer. Already, government contracts to the shipping companies building vessels for the war guarantee them huge profits. Shipowner Robert Dollar reflects the attitude of maritime employers when he casually remarks, The best way to end a strike is to send
13: ambulances full of picketers to the hospital. At the parade, a bomb goes off.
10: No one knows what has happened. Dead and injured are strewn over the street and sidewalks.
12: 10 persons are killed, 40 seriously injured. The world was shocked by this horrible and mysterious disaster. Despite obvious perjury by prosecution witnesses, union organizer Tom Mooney is sentenced to death and Warren Billings to life imprisonment. The Mooney case seems like a rerun of the McNamara brothers. At least the employers hope to use it the same way in San Francisco. There is one difference. Mooney and Billings are innocent. Nevertheless, their case becomes part of a broader anti-union propaganda campaign, including this film. In November 1916, the employers put an anti-picketing initiative on the city ballot. They hire 400 operators to call voters. When the proposition passes, picketing becomes punishable by 50 days in jail. This new law helps defeat strikes of restaurant workers and longshoremen. The sailors' turn comes in 1921, when ship owners force a strike that all but destroys the seamen's Union. In the years after the war, employers' organizations such as the San Francisco Industrial Association patriotically call the open shop idea the American Plan. They attempt to equate unionism with revolution, anarchy, and violence. They point to Russia. In 1917, the Bolshevik party takes power in the name of the working class. Capitalism is abolished. While some American capitalists are genuinely frightened that it could happen here, other employers and politicians cynically use fear of revolution to create an anti-union propaganda tool. In newspapers, politics, and movies, open-shop advocates create a red scare and a public atmosphere of intolerance, of hatred and fear towards difference. The California legislature passes the vaguely worded Criminal Syndicalism Act. It gives sweeping anti-union powers to law enforcement agencies. These powers are displayed in 1923 during an IWW-led strike in Southern California. Writer Upton Sinclair is arrested along with striking maritime workers for the crime of reading the Bill of Rights allowed to a rally on Signal Hill overlooking the San Pedro Harbor. In San Diego and San Pedro, IWW halls are wrecked and burned by mobs. Vigilantes pour scalding coffee on children of IWW members. Even Walt Disney puts in his two cents. He produces an animated cartoon that features a little red troublemaking rooster who attempts to organize discontent among the hens. (laughs) AFL unions shrink back to pre-war levels. Ku Klux Klan members march in Richmond and get elected in Oakland. Across the country, thousands of Russian immigrants are rounded up, and deported. With the IWW leadership in jail, and the AFL unable or unwilling to organize, corporations present themselves as looking out for the workers' welfare. Some form company unions and put on dances others sponsor employee sports leagues. But many people, such as Ventura County ranch hand Bill Rogers and his friends, don't rely on corporate culture for their fun. They seem to be saying, you can always make your own. Corporate sponsored activities can't hide the oppressive realities of the open shop, especially in mass production industries. Henry Ford opens an auto plant in Long Beach. Assembly line speeds force eight of nine auto workers to leave their jobs within a year after they are hired. Longshoremen must reapply for their jobs every morning in what was called the shape-up, belong to a do-nothing company union, and bribe foremen to get work. 50,000 women work in canneries, where California's huge agricultural and fishing industries package raw foods for consumers' tables. A third are Mexican immigrants. The work is low paid and deadly in its repetition. Poor working conditions lead to a high number of injuries. The decade following World War I was known as the Roaring Twenties or the Jazz Age, but it wasn't so jazzy for most working people. Could things get worse? Oh yes. Consider the effects of the stock market crash in 1929.
16: So
4: there were no jobs for incoming workers. Everywhere, the same story. Men looking for work, not finding it.
6: Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for your kind understanding attention here tonight. And I hope that someday we will have the opportunity of meeting under more auspicious circumstances.
2: That was the voice of uh, Tom Mooney, who was framed uh, in San Francisco for a bomb that he never threw. The bomb was thrown during a preparedness day celebration. In other words, the nation was being gingered up to fight the next war in the name of uh, capitalism. You're listening to Fred Glass's history of the california labor movement and we're up to part four we'll listen to part five and then um, it's going to be time to get out of here part five golden lands working hands
12: in the working out of a great national
9: program that seeks the primary good of the greater number
4: It is true that the toes of some people are being stepped on, and are going to be stepped on. But these toes belong to the comparative few who seek to retain or to gain position or riches or both by some short cut that is harmful to the greater good.
12: When President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs several important pieces of legislation in the 1930s, he creates the laws he calls the New Deal, the National Recovery Act, National Labor Relations Act, the Social Security Act, and the Fair Labor Standards Act. The New Deal is a response to the severe conditions of the Great Depression, when more than 25% of the workforce is unemployed, and it seems to many as if capitalism is collapsing.
4: Once I build a railroad Made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower to the sun, brick and rivet and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime?
12: These laws establish for the first time the legitimacy of unions and workers' rights nationally and create minimum standards for employment such as the 40-hour week and restrictions on child labor. This is what today we call the social safety net.
6: Steve's unemployment check is not as big as the wage he used to
4: get, but it goes a long way toward buying groceries and paying rent. It
6: helps keep his family going while the Employment Office helped Steve find a job.
12: Other New Deal programs put people to work building roads, parks, national forests, government buildings, and even making art in public spaces. Socialists and Communists had said for years that the country needed laws and programs like these, but until the Depression, such ideas were considered too radical. Now, novelist Upton Sinclair sees an opportunity to bring these notions into the mainstream he drops his longtime Socialist Party affiliation. The California Democratic Party nominates him its candidate for governor. His 1934 campaign calls for production for use and turning over idle factories and land to working people.
6: And they will be able to produce great quantities of wealth and to make comfort and plenty for themselves. We think that this is the true American plan. We say that it represents California's share of the New Deal.
12: Sinclair wins widespread labor support, but loses the election when Hollywood movie studios force all the theaters in California to show fake newsreels supposedly showing tramps flocking into the state in expectation of a Sinclair victory. Presented as documentary films, These are actually entirely scripted and acted, including this interview.
13: I'm going to vote for Upton St. Clair. Will you
8: tell us why? Upton St. Clair is the author of the Russian government and it worked out very well there and I think it should do here.
12: The New Deal is also responding to the growing number of demonstrations and strikes by working people often organized by left-wing groups. Some of these events, by their size and militancy, seem to verge on revolution. After 15 years of the open shop on the San Francisco waterfront, dock workers are sick of shape-ups, of bribing bosses to get work, and of making 75 cents an hour. When a group of rank-and-file longshoremen, radical activists, start up a newsletter agitating for change, they find a receptive audience. Section 7A of the National Recovery Act allows workers to join unions. Thousands of West Coast longshoremen stream into the International Longshoremen's Association, or ILA. They demand a union-run hiring hall, a $0.25 per hour raise, and a 30-hour week so that work could be shared equally. When the employers reject these ideas, 12,000 longshoremen strike the West Coast on May 9, 1934. The public is generally sympathetic. Many students come out to demonstrate their support. Sailors and other maritime workers join the strike. They want their own changes to deal with working 14 to 16 hour days, rotten food, and living quarters on ships Andy Furiouseth describes as bigger than a coffin, but smaller than a grave. They also want an end to hiring through employer-run think halls. All the unions agree no one returns to work until everyone gets what they need. With 40,000 on strike, this is the largest maritime job action in U.S. history. An immigrant Australian longshoreman named Harry Bridges emerges from the ranks as head of the strike committee. Articulate, a brilliant strategist, Harry insists any settlement must be voted on by all members of the Union. National ILA President Joe Ryan flies out from the East. Conservative and corrupt, Ryan feels more comfortable with the bosses than with these new militant West Coast Unionists. He signs two agreements with employers. Neither contains any of the strikers' demands. Ryan attempts to explain at a meeting of thousands of San Francisco longshoremen. Unaccustomed to democratic unionism, he is startled when they overwhelmingly reject his settlements. Rank and file longshoreman Pirate Larson leaps on stage.
9: This guy's a
13: fink, and he's trying to make finks out of us. Let's throw him out. As he leaves, Ryan warns. Bridges does not want this strike settled. My firm belief is that he is acting for the communists.
12: The employers open the ports with a massive show of force. They are determined to crush the maritime workers' strike. The bosses hire a thousand strikebreakers in San Francisco alone, including hundreds of black workers who are barred from the Union. This tactic is neutralized when the Union, breaking with its racist past, approaches African-American longshoremen and asks them to join the Union and the strike. Many do. But on July 5th, other weapons are turned on the strikers. One witness reports,
13: Struggling knots of longshoremen, closely pressed by officers mounted and on foot, swarmed everywhere. The air was filled with blinding gas, the howl of the sirens, the low boom of the gas guns, the crack of pistol fire, the whine of the bullets, the shouts and curses of sweating men. Everywhere was a rhythmical waving of arms, like trees in the wind,
12: swinging clubs, swinging fists, hurling rocks, hurling bombs. As the police moved from one group to the next, men lay bloody, unconscious or in convulsions, in the gutters, on the sidewalks,
14: in the streets.
12: Around
13: on Madison Street, a plainclothes man dismounted from a radio car waved his shotgun nervously at the shouting pickets who scattered. I saw nothing thrown at him. Suddenly he fired up and down the street and two men fell in a pool of gore, one evidently dead, the other half attempting to rise but weakening fast.
12: Longshoreman Howard Sperry is dead. A block away, so is cook Nick Bordeaux, who was volunteering in the strike kitchen.
13: Not one smile in the endless blocks of marching men. Crowds on the sidewalk, for the most part, stood with heads erect and hats removed. Others watched the procession with fear and alarm. Here and there, well-dressed businessmen from Montgomery Street stood amazed and impressed, but with their hats still on their heads. Sharp voices shut out of the line of march. Take
12: off your hat.
13: The tone of voice was extraordinary the reaction was immediate. With quick, nervous gestures, the businessmen obeyed. As the last marcher broke ranks, the certainty of a general strike, which up to this time had appeared to many to be a visionary dream of a small group of the most radical workers, became for the first time a practical and realizable objective.
12: Against the advice of San Francisco Labor Council officers Edward Vandeleur and Mike Casey, 64 unions vote to strike. Seeing the writing on the wall, even the conservative council officers vote for a general strike. And then strikers run the city. Workplaces are shut tight. With the exception of emergency deliveries allowed by the general strike leadership, virtually no work takes place. Labouring
13: men appeared on the streets in their Sunday clothes, shiny celluloid union buttons glistening on every lapel. Common social barriers were swept away in the spirit of the occasion. Strangers addressed each other warmly as friends.
12: Then it was the employer's turn, the counterattack. City government and the media whip up public hysteria. An army of communists is marching on San Francisco. The strikers are going to starve the city
14: into submission.
12: In this atmosphere, hundreds are arrested. And so-called radical hangouts are wrecked in a massive effort to eliminate the imaginary alien red menace. After four days, Labor Council conservatives, over the angry objections of the maritime unions, call off the general strike.
6: To you, Mr. Vanderloor, as president of the San Francisco Labor Council and chairman of the General Strike Committee, and to your associates, I offer my congratulations upon your decision and the part it has played in bringing to an end
4: the general strike in san francisco
12: the inconclusive use of their biggest weapon convinces most longshoremen and many seamen that time has come to compromise longshoremen vote to submit all issues to federal arbitration and to end the strike
2: All right, we listen today on the Labor and Love Show to Fred Glass's history of the California labor movement, Golden Land's Working Hands. From the beginning of white labor movement in San Francisco during the gold rush to the general strike in San Francisco 1934, this has been a true celebration of International Workers' Day, so let's uh, play a little music here.
16: this
2: is the B and this is the labor and love show signing off You're listening to the China broadcast live international workers song. this is the bee signing off remember one person works get a gets a dollar they didn't work for someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get remember that every 15 seconds somewhere around the world A worker dies because of job-related causes or conditions. Remember, please, if you don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table, that is, you're on the menu. Remember, please, never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor, and when I say labor, I mean you. This is Labor and Love signing off. Have a good week and good work. Remember, Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road.
0: Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned and operated food cooperative located at 1745 Folsom Street in the Mission District of San Francisco. Let's hear what locals have to say about Rainbow.
1: Black, black, plastic, ladies and gentlemen. Mutinyradio.fm is what you're listening to.